This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode is based around topics submitted by you, our listeners. These include, is the pilot shortage real? A question on flying Icelandic air? A new air mobility initiative? Tips for the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta? The Boeing E-7 Wedgetail? Funding your world travel, or more specifically, Brian's world travel? The next airborne nuclear command and control aircraft? Peter Johnson's Aviation Extended podcast is an Aviation and Aerospace Media Award finalist and aviation careers that don't require a pilot's license. In the news, the FAA changes the plan for eVertol certification. BA pilots aren't happy with pay cuts. Republic wants an exception to the 1,500-hour rule. An all-electric sea glider. And how you get in the cockpit when you're locked out. Also, remembering Glenn Tower. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 702 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Just got out of the garden. First time in like 20 years that I've actually planted a vegetable garden. So it's been been out in the sunshine. It's kind of nice to be out and, you know, doing things other than television. So looking forward to a quiet show tonight. I want to see pictures, David. When you have some nice, big, juicy red tomatoes, I want to see some pictures. Don't jinx me, but you're okay. All right. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back here with you. I had uh, two nice flights today, so I've been up in the air all day, and it's uh, always fun to be up there in my office with uh, windows on all four sides. (laughs) Great day for flying. Nice to be here with you. Beautiful. Well, Rob Mark is still off. He's still convalescing from his procedure. He's doing okay. Uh, We were hoping he'd be doing better. I think he was hoping he'd be doing better, but I'm sure he'll be joining us uh, in the not-too-distant future. We look forward to that. Well, uh, first we wanted to let you know that our good friend Glenn Towler has passed away. Micah recorded a short eulogy for the Plain Talking UK podcast, And he uh, said we could play it here. So here's Micah. He was a citizen of the Commonwealth who once lived in the UK. He was a Kiwi from New Zealand, where he spent most of his life. But to many of us, although not ever an American citizen, nor even a full-time resident, he was the mayor of Oshkosh. As many of you already know, I'm describing Glenn Towler, a true aviation enthusiast and good friend to many in the aviation podcast community. You may have noticed that much of what I just said was in the past tense. If you haven't already heard, it is with a feeling of sadness that I need to tell you that Glenn flew west on Thursday, 12 May, 2022. For us here on PTUK today, that was yesterday. 
It's a very sad story in so many ways. While home in New Zealand, he had a horrible, painful cough a few weeks ago. A lung inflammation, he was told, and he was being treated for it. While he was getting better, he heard that his mother passed in the UK. He was too ill to travel, so they put off the funeral until he could make it. Last week, he flew from New Zealand to the UK via LAX, but when he arrived, he wasn't feeling well. He checked into a hospital and was diagnosed with a bowel obstruction and lung cancer. The plan was to have surgery to remove the blockage and then treat the lung cancer. He was in awful pain while they did tests and planned the surgery. On Wednesday, Glenn told us he just found out that his medical issues were beyond any kind of treatment, and he only had weeks to go. On Thursday, yesterday, he was gone. Glenn and I never met. We only communicated via Twitter and occasionally when we were in a group aviation Zoom call together. I need to be honest about this. He and I had arguments and disagreements and, in fact, had a major squabble last July. But we got through it. Glenn planned his trip to Oshkosh this year to include a side trip to Maine. We were planning on getting together for a lot of hangar talk and a beer or two or three. It was going to be just a couple of months from now. Glenn is going to be missed by a lot of people. He knew everybody. Many say Oshkosh will never be the same without the mayor. But for those of you who feel that way, I want you to consider this. At Oshkosh EAA Air Venture, from now on, Glenn has the best seats in the house. And Glenn, one more thing. That beer together is still going to happen. We'll just have to wait a little while longer for it. Save me a seat at the bar and enjoy yourself while you wait. I'm sure to be along sometime. And once I'm there, I promise to get the next round. For PTUK, here in Portland, Maine. This is your main man, Uncle Micah. And then there was a post by uh, Hillel. Hillel noted that Glenn deeply loved EAA and AirVenture. He said Glenn would save up money all year to make the journey from New Zealand to Oshkosh every summer. He also says Glenn was well-known at Camp Bacon and throughout the aviation community through his avid participation in many online aviation forums and podcasts to which he frequently submitted short recordings. Now, Hillel tells us we are collecting funds to buy Glenn a brick at the Brown Arch where Glenn endeavored to arrange a group photo each year of all his online friends that he could but uh, only see in person at that time of year. We will also have enough funds to have Glenn's name and obit inscribed on the EAA Museum Memorial Wall and excess funds that will be donated to EAA. So there is a link that we'll put in the show notes where you can donate if you'd like. Uh, that'll be at the show notes at airplanegeeks.com slash 702 if you'd like to contribute. So, uh, yeah, very sad no uh, news. Glenn was a frequent contributor and uh, to this podcast and sent us lots of emails and uh, recordings now and then as well. So we'll very much miss Glenn. With that, we're going to do something a little different this episode. We're going to start out with some, well, actually some listener mail. Uh, we've uh, received quite a bit of oh, comments and questions and topics to talk about uh, over the past uh, few months, and we haven't been able to get to them. But we'll do that now. We're going to focus on your topics to start out with. 
So uh, we'll kick it off with the first one from Tom. And he sent us a link from AvWeb, Opinions Differ on Pilot Shortage. And in that article, uh, it notes that the Airline Pilots Association, ALPA, has created a web page, More Than Enough Pilots to Meet U.S. Airline Demand, Debunking the Pilot Shortage Myth. On this webpage, they say that uh, over the past eight years, the U.S. has produced more than enough certificated pilots to meet airline hiring demands and compensate for retirements, even as new and more rigorous pilot training standards were enacted to enhance safety. In fact, uh, they say uh, there are currently about one and a half certificated pilots relative to demand. Uh, This from Bureau of Labor Statistics data. So uh, they're saying that we don't have a pilot shortage, which is a little different opinion than we seem to uh, have encountered in the past few years from many other sources. Well, I think for at least 30 years, there's been an ongoing argument about the pilot shortage. And it's funny, there there have been certain uh, you know people and organizations that seem to you know, make it a, a cottage industry of saying that we do have a shortage or saying that we don't have a shortage. Uh, and I would say that uh, regardless of you know, the, how true it's been in the past, I think it's been more true in the last couple, well, in the last year, that we really do have much more of a shortage than we've had in uh, in past years. Uh, and I'm sure there are lots of other uh, you know nuances to the uh, to the entire thing. But you know, if you just look at all the the many factors going on, uh, there are just so many things that point to uh, not enough pilots in enough airplanes. You've got all kinds of cancellations, you've got delays, you've got people striking, you've even got something we'll talk about in a moment, which is an airline pushing for lower experience requirements. I would say most of the signposts really point to uh, much more of a shortage than we've ever had in the past. The union uh, tries to lay blame uh, for all of this uh, on airline executives who they say uh, uh, aren't willing to stand by their business decisions to cut air service and be upfront about their intentions to skirt safety rules and hire inexperienced workers for less pay. But they're arguing that clearly when the pandemic hit, airlines got hammered and had to uh, take some drastic actions in various different ways. And uh, the union is is not complimentary of how the airlines have responded to upticks in volume, travel volume. And ALPA has some specific things that they'd like to see. And I think these are kind of interesting. They'd like to see more pilots in the pipeline with incentives. They'd like to see uh, federal funding of education, as well as grants that would expand degree programs. Uh, They think that we should see aviation job opportunities promoted more widely. Uh, A more diverse workforce should be recruited. Uh, They'd like to see Title IV funding for underrepresented communities increased. And uh, and to the last uh, point on the 1,500-hour rule, they want to maintain the ICAO and YASA age standard for retirement. And, uh, Max, as you mentioned, we've got a story coming up about that. We'll have, obviously, a link to the AvWeb article, but also a link to the ALPA webpage uh, where they, uh, they make their case 
that uh, we don't really have a pilot shortage. And the uh, the, the battle continues. It does. <laughs> I think there there will always be people that say there's a shortage. There will always be people that say that there isn't. And, and I think the, the pendulum kind of moves, you know, back and forth. But right now I'd say, yeah, we're probably shorter on pilots than we've been in a long time. Yeah. And I mean, not only do does the pendulum uh, that represents a, opinion swing, but also the reality, you know, the economic condition, you know, the state of the economy, the demand for receipts, you know, all of these things impact it. It's not like there's a static, you know, yes or no, there is a, a shortage, there is not a shortage, or the shortage is this big or that big. It's a dynamic situation, I think. Yeah, and I'm a little sympathetic to the the plight of the airlines. It's just really tough to manage uh, employment up and down that rapidly and still try to you know, not lose too much money. So you know, airlines, I think, have historically uh, you know, had massive swings from profits to uh, to losses, and it's just it's really hard to to adjust the uh, their cost structure as rapidly as the. You know, the economics change. So it's it's a challenging problem that uh, that they have. And sure, I'm sure there's a lot that they could have done better. But uh, it's, not, it's not a trivial problem. No doubt. Philip wrote to us. He's looking for some information about traveling on Icelandic air. He tells us he's a longtime listener and a fellow lifelong aviation cognoscente. But he asks, have uh, you or any of your listeners flown on Icelandic air? More specifically, how did the connection and KEF, Keflavich, work? Did you stay in the same terminal or flow through customs and immigration, then back out to your connection to the EU or back to the USA from the EU? Now, he's going to be traveling with uh, some 80-year-old parents. So he says, so the usual hamster trail of IHR, FRA, CDG would be a little more than they or us can handle. So he's wondering how their connection process works for through passengers. Again, that's from Captain Phil. So uh, any experience out there with, you know, Icelandic air and uh, and the connections at Keflavich uh, would be appreciated. You can write to us at the geeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll pass that along to Captain Phil. And I'll certainly put in my two cents having uh, flown in and out of that airport a couple of times. Uh, and the first time it was on the old Icelandic air, which predates the, the current one. So that was in the 1970s. And most recently I was there mm, four or five years ago on uh, WOW Airlines. Uh, in the first case, I connected through there. So you know, it was a stopover, wait a couple hours and then catch the flight to Europe, which sounds like uh, what Phil is doing here. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be concerned about the connection. The The most recent time, I just flew to Iceland, uh, stayed there for a week, and, and came back. Um, I believe that uh, he's going to end up in the same terminal. I don't think he's going to be allowed out of it. I don't think he's going to have to go through customs. I think that uh, you know it'll be a pretty straightforward process. I can't tell him how far he's going to walk. Kind of depends on you know what gate he comes into and you know, what gate that he comes out of. But yeah, I, I don't think he's going to have to, if he's just connecting there to a Europe and he's only going to be there for, you know, the two hours or three hours, I don't think he has to go through the whole customs process, but I'm not a hundred percent sure because when I did that, it was a long time ago. And on a most recent trip, I didn't do that. Yeah. I think I've said before, 
Iceland is on my uh, bucket list of places to visit. I, I know of. Can't drive there, Max. I know I can't drive there. <laughs> we'll build a bridge. Yeah, no, I would have to fly, wouldn't I, David? Yeah, I would have to. You, you'll have to fly. Yeah, yeah. But everybody I've ever met who has been to Iceland has loved it and recommended it, and many of them have gone back. I, I loved it, and I would I would go back. Uh, and you know, I'm kind of a guy who likes cool weather anyway. So to me, I was like in heaven. You know, I'm not, I'm not really fond of you know roasting in ninety and hundred degree you know temperatures in the tropics. So yeah, I would I would do this or an Alaska cruise any day. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Patrick Wiggins sent us a couple of items. Uh, first is an article in Clean Technica titled "Electric Air Transport of the Future." Air Mobility Initiative. Uh, it's about urban air mobility, EV tall uh, technology, things like that. And this article mentions that the Air Mobility Initiative, the AMI, has been created, which it confused me at first because there's also something called the Community Air Mobility Initiative, um, which maybe has similar long-term goals, but going about it differently. Uh, the AMI, the Air Mobility Initiative, I think is more of a European kind of uh, organization where they are anticipating a series of research projects that look at making electric air mobility uh, within cities and between cities a reality. And they've actually started some of their projects, uh, started in January 2022. And the projects, they say, are centered around three main areas, electric aircraft, air traffic management services, and vertiports. And they have a number of partners, uh, leading companies in the space, universities, research institutions, even municipalities and organizations. Uh, the list is in the article. And it does seem like these are primarily or maybe even exclusively European organizations, a lot of them, a lot of them in Germany. And then you may recall... Was it last time? I can't remember about the uh, the Tesla that crashed into the into the Cirrus Vision Jet, and uh, Patrick sent us uh, some images of what his Tesla sees when you point it at a small aircraft. And the answer is for for those that hasn't haven't listened to that episode is it doesn't see anything because it hasn't been trained to see airplanes. It sees the traffic cones and other things that you'd expect, but it doesn't see the airplanes. Well, there's been a update to the Tesla Autopilot software, and he said, um, once, uh, once I've got one, one of the first things I'm going to do is drive to the airport and, uh, and see if the car sees, quotation marks, sees airplanes. Um, and then we subsequently heard from Patrick, and he sent some, uh, some more pictures. One is the picture that shows the, the view out the the front of the Tesla windshield, the picture he took with a camera, and there is a, that's a Vision Jet sitting there, isn't that Max? No, it certainly is. Yeah, and then alongside that is the image of the the Tesla. I guess that's the display scene. It's what the Tesla sees, and as with the last time, the Tesla sees the traffic cones. It does see the airplane, except this time or now. Except that it's depicted as a, as a truck, as a tractor trailer, which is it's kind of uh, amusing. So, so Tesla has has made that improvement. So maybe we won't see 
Tesla's crashing into vision jets in the future uh, because apparently they think that uh, they need to avoid tractor trailers parked out on the tarmac. <laughs> and all I can say is, Patrick, when you go to uh, test your car, please test it on, oh, you know, a Piper, a Cessna, <laughs> a Mooney. Just don't test it on a Cirrus, please. Something not so expensive. <laughs> but it is. it was a really interesting conversation about this whole process that, you know, it's machine learning, you know, and the car is only as smart as what you've taught it. It's kind of amazing that they didn't ever think of a car driving around an airport, you know, but there it is. So, I mean, at least now it sort of understands something's there, but maybe Tesla can work a little bit more. I wonder if it recognizes a SpaceX rocket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't want a crashing in, want a Tesla crashing into the launch pad. It, oh gosh, the next SpaceX launch. Yeah, it, it is pretty interesting, and maybe one way to relate it even more solidly to aviation when we talk about you know autonomous flight and things like that is, as David said, these things are are, are machine learning. You're not programming every single possible occurrence or situation or environment. No, you're you're training it specific things, but it's an incremental process, right? We're not seeing Tesla's staying for decades in the development cycle while every eventuality gets gets tested. It's an incremental process. So when it comes to aviation and the you know the autonomous kinds of aircraft that many people are working to develop, an incremental development process doesn't isn't as as appealing, is it? <laughs> But, you know, mm -hmm. and, and Max, you and I have been talking about sense and avoid for years now with, with the e-virtuals as well as drones. Sense and avoid is the biggest challenge, you know. I mean, not only just sensing it, but if you're flying an unmanned aircraft and you're flying a manned aircraft, right, the unmanned aircraft will probably repeat the same process every time when it sees the other aircraft coming towards them. Humans don't necessarily do that, you know, and technically when you pass somebody, you're supposed to go to the left. But what happens if you freak somebody out and they go to the right? So those kind of technologies are learned, you know, and unfortunately mistakes like crashing into vision deaths, it's one of those ways that they learn. They go, oh, wait a minute, maybe we missed something. And I think, Max, your point probably is that if you were to take the same approach in aviation to software development, we'd have a lot of crashes. Yes. And I think that's why the FAA is so extremely careful in the certification process. For example, we just learned recently that as part of the certification effort of one aircraft, and I forget which, uh, the FAA just went back and uh, insisted that they do a line-by-line -line validation of all of the software which, holy cow, what a nightmare. You know, if you look at something like the Garmin G1000, that's got more than a, a million lines of code. Uh, all I can say is that doesn't sound like fun to go through no. and validate every line of code. But you can see from a, a safety standpoint, the FAA just can't afford to have even, you know, one miss out of a million. You know, you figure we have over, I don't know, some period of months, a million flights in the U.S., and if we had a crash every few months that was attributed to software, especially of an airliner, that would be really bad. So it makes sense that they are pushing back and really insisting on as much validation of software as possible, 
Whereas clearly, you know, in the automobile environment, if your car ends up stopping on the side of the road, that's not quite a big a deal as your airplane suddenly stopping in flight. That's right. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Uh, John wrote in uh, in response to uh, my request for some tips, some advice for first-time attendees of the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. John says that he's been involved with crewing hot air balloons for over 20 years. I think he's qualified here. He said he's he's made it to the uh, Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta once in 2011. He said the, the key is to volunteer to crew. He said there's a way to sign up to be matched with a pilot on their website. Plenty of people out of town that don't have a full crew with them. And so uh, you can volunteer. Now, you may recall from some of the photos from the Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta that there's all different kinds of balloons there. Some of them are just sort of, you know, standard-shaped hot air balloons, but some of them are special characters and things like that. And he said regular-shaped balloon pilots normally reward their crew members with a flight at some time in the week. That's pretty cool. He says, uh, everyone meets pre-dawn. Let me repeat that. Everyone meets pre-dawn. I've heard of that concept. Explain it to me again. Yes. What, what, is, what is dawn and what is pre-dawn? Oh, dark 30. That's right. Okay, think, yes. That I know. I think the last time I was up at pre-dawn was in college, and that was only because we hadn't gone to sleep yet. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's my definition of 5 a.m. It's like, oh, didn't get to sleep yet. But that makes sense, you know, with uh, with balloon launches because you want to do that in the in the early still air. But anyway, John says everyone meets pre-dawn. Best way to get the full experience. Take time in the week to ride the tram and eat at the restaurant on Sandia Peak. Uh, he says this year this will be uh, his second trip and the first for his bride Peggy. Cool, cool. Hope to see you there. I'm sure you'll have a great time. So, of course, the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta is October 1st through 9th this year, 2022. And the website where you can learn more is, guess what, balloonfiesta.com. So, cool. Anybody else going? Let us know. Let us know. Are you going? I'm planning on it. Um, Really? Yes. Um, Two days ago, I was 100% sure. Uh, yeah. Today I'm uh, I'm probably eighty five percent sure, but I think I can work it out. So we'll get that back up. So yeah, planning on attending that. That sounds like great fun. I've I been know. to Albuquerque's main airport there probably half a dozen times, moving airplanes across the country. It's a great stop, and a few times I've had to, a car and driven around. I had never heard of um, the tramway at Sandia Peak, uh, so I was kind of delighted to learn about that. It sounds like it goes up. 4,000 feet, so that would be quite a fun thing to do there. Wow. It's a 4,000-foot tram? goes up to uh, 10,400 feet, basically. So it has it goes up 4,000 feet to get you to 10-4. What's up there? A good view, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it says, enjoy breathtaking views of over 11,000 square miles in New breathtaking Mexico. Breathtaking is a good word for it. Yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you been up there, David? No, but when I, I I've been up that high other places, and yeah, it it's hard to breathe. Yeah, it's hard to breathe. <laughs> that's what you mean by breathtaking. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. So that's cool. Um, yeah, let us know if any anybody else is going. Maybe we can uh, 
range to. And I guess another question is, do, do people go for the whole week or do people just go for a couple of days? Because it, it seems like, you know, each day is sort of pretty much the same events as the previous day. But I, I don't I don't know exactly. Well, I have never been. This sounds like fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look and see if that makes sense to come join you down there. You should think about be, it. That would be fun. I love just you know, find a corner of aviation, you know, that you don't know much about. And I don't know much about hot air balloons. And, no, me neither. And that kind of stuff. And just to go and immerse yourself in in an event like this. I mean, it's kind of like going to Oshkosh or something if you're, you know, if it's something that you've never done before. You know, it's a, a, a kind of a unique experience, I think. The uh, balloon fiesta is one of those kind of things. Sounds like we need the airplane geeks meet up there. Absolutely. Errol wrote to us. Uh, he said, good follow-up on the wait for U.S. Air Force wedge tails, including the modifications from current fit, not delaying delivery. Uh, I was aware of P8A. David, what's a wedge tail? Wedge tail is a, um, for all of those people who don't know how to speak military, is a 737 with a very large antenna on the top of it. It was designed as a low-cost replacement for countries like Australia, which is the first people to purchase it, and, and um, South Korea as a airborne early warning um, command post, or what we would call AWACS. So... Our 707s, the AWACS, are really long in the tooth. They're 40- or 50-year-old airframes, um, and the Air Force wants to replace them with the Wedgetail, which is basically in production currently in Boeing, and they just want to start producing them for the Air Force to, re- to get rid of the, the E3s or the um, AWACS that have been around since the late 70s. So... It's definitely a off-the-shelf purchase. They're trying to update it a little bit, but um, this is a quicker the better process. The AWACS plane, that's the one with the big pancake dome on top? That's the one with the big flying saucer flying in formation with it. Um, but a wedge tail is different. It's got a long, slender, um, parallel to the fuselage antenna that's slanted it's not doesn't rotate like the um, AWACS dome does. This is a more of a, an electronically phased array, not a physically phased array. Oh. And I just popped a picture into the show notes there, so you can take a look, Max. It's really kind of interesting. I haven't, uh, you know, seen this before that I recall. And uh, David's right; it's definitely a fixed array. It doesn't move, so they electronically uh, rotate the antennas to uh, to get a full picture. Is that? Korean on the that's the South Korean one, yes. Uh, because uh, Boeing produces these, has produced these for our allies, right? Yeah, so right. So Australia was the first people, they're the ones who actually named it the wedge tail, um, you know, otherwise known as the flying toaster. Toaster, because <laughs> I can it, see that. Uh, um, why does it look like that? Because it looks like there's a piece of toast popping out of it. Um, so the flying toaster, but um, South Korea. And it's in kind of in line with the Boeing P-8, which is the um, 737 anti-submarine variant, um, which also is a militarized version of the 737. Um, not Max. These are the old 800s and 700s. Um, and they have the military ones have kind of a mixed blend 
of a one variant wing to a fuselage of another variant, and of course all of the electronics inside to go with it. You know, and of course the P eight has a bomb bay for torpedo. You know, because every every thirty seven thirty seven should have a weapons bay because that would make them interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I mean that would get, their luggage would get out quicker. You know. So it just, <laughs> But, but so yeah, so now Errol's right. Um, I mean, it's it's been a very successful program, the Wedge Tail, and the Air Force is finally admitting that you know what they waved on something that they probably should have picked up on. So we'll see what happens going forward. David, you should not have mentioned uh, the Bombay for luggage because I am sure Ryan Air is going to implement that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we we can get your luggage before the plane even lands, right? <laughs> so there's this uh, there's an article that uh, Errol sent to us here from uh, Breaking Defense and I I guess uh, one aspect of this is that the the Air Force sort of has to wait in line for for Boeing to to produce these things right well, while you say while you say it's off the shelf but they have to build them like this and there's a lot of other uh, aircraft you know in the schedule ahead of these is that yeah, I mean, our allies have been purchasing them for the last couple, I mean, the last decade. So they already have their orders in. So the Air Force is, you know, the Air Force is sort of has to wait in line, you know, like, and of course, the Air Force isn't used to waiting in line for anything. So this is yeah. one of those they're going to try to manipulate them around, um, you know, and see if they can push back some of the UK ones to bring the Air Force ones aboard. And they're playing games with Boeing, so we'll see what happens, you know. And Boeing's really in no place to argue with all of their other programs falling apart. So it, it'll be interesting to see what if the Air Force muscles around the other Air Forces who have purchased these in advance already. Cool. And uh, we'll put that image, that photo uh, of the wedge tail that, uh, that Max T came up with in the show notes. It really is kind of an interesting airplane. Interesting looking, very different. Um, and there's lots of little, I don't know what those little things are sprouting, besides the, the big array, sprouting from the top of the fuselage, some kind of... Antennas. Yeah, yeah it looks all? like about a dozen small antennas in the front. Signals yeah. antennas, yeah. So, signals antennas, SATCOM antennas. You know, this is designed to act as a command and control center for... So there's got to be nodules for taking in information and nodules for sending out information like the P eight, the P eight's designed to operate with um, unmanned aircraft. Basically you want to control the whole airspace. So that's what the wedge shell does. It controls the airspace, um, identifies friends and foes vector. You know, that was one of those things that back in 1991 was the first real war we fought with an AWACS you know, and the the Iraqis were taking off from airports, taking off from their military airfields, and the AWACSs were, as they were taking off, vectoring in Allied aircraft to take to take out the aircraft just before they even got to altitude. So, I mean, that kind of battlefield surveillance is really important. Hmm. So, especially in this current electronic age. And do you think they can add the Harrison Ford's escape module to it as well? <laughs> Great movie. That part of it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. Well, you know, speaking of movies, so uh, Top Gun reviews are are coming out. The ones that I've seen have all 
been pretty positive, uh, you know, including people who are watching that movie with a you know military background looking for you know inaccuracies and things. And there are a few, I guess, uh, you know, things that are not that way in in real life. But most of the reviews seem to be pretty positive. I think we're in for a good show. I mean, it took twenty plus years, but you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be stuff that's going to be, um, I don't know, cringeworthy. But you know what? No one's ever really complained about the other movie being cringe. You know, we all watch it no matter what. So sure. you know, oh, yeah. totally. Yeah, it's got the guy, it's got the airplane, it's got the girl. What what isn't to want? So yeah, I think it's uh, out on streaming on Paramount Plus starting May 27th. And is it in theaters now? I guess. Uh, I. I'm not sure. I think they might have been all previews that yeah. have uh, been the basis for the reviews. Well, no, they did. Pre- they did do the premiere, so there have been people who have seen it already because there was a big deal about the fact that in the premiere in San Diego, um, Tom Cruise flew in in his own specially marked Eurocopter himself to arrive at the preview so it was you know when you step out of your own helicopter and, and you were flying it it was kind of funny now just before the pandemic uh, paramount invited me to a press event which also put me under an nda until you know until the movie was released but of course that schedule got altered by like two years as as a result of COVID. But I did have the opportunity to meet with and speak with uh, many of the actors in the, in the movie, not Tom Cruise, but pretty much all the rest of them. And one of the um, interesting things was that every one of them was just beaming um, over the experience they'd had because um, it, was, uh, it was very important uh, to Tom Cruise, that uh, there not be a lot of CG, a lot of computer graphics, that uh, the cockpit scenes uh, are all real cockpit scenes um, in the movie, which meant that the the actors playing pilots had to experience themselves just what you see in the movie. Uh, and, and they were just you know, to listen to them describe the experience, you know, I mean, I mean, you're going to be in a, you know, fighter jet. You, know, you can't walk away from that without, um, you know, having lots of uh, exciting things to talk about. So I guess the point is that the, you know, the the realism seems to be something that they, they really focused on. Now, I know some of the aircraft maneuvering that you see in the movie is um, not anything you'd really expect to see in real life. But um, yeah, it's close enough, you know. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see it. Definitely, there aren't any big twenty eights carrying the deadly Exocet missile. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's one thing. To this day, I still want to build a Northrop F five with an Exocet missile, and and so people can see that if you hung an Exocet missile under the wing of an F five, the missile is pushing the wing off the ground and dragging on the ground because it's so big. <laughs> so it just yeah. wow. Boy, that's quite an old airframe at this point, too, the F-5. What is that, from the early 60s, as I recall? So, yeah, but still a very fast plane. Hey, Max, did you come away with some recordings of uh, these interviews you did with the cast? No, I wasn't allowed to. You know, if I had known that we were, well, I mean, how would would I have? But if I had known that we were going to experience this multi-year delay, 
um, after the event, I would have sat down and just captured in writing everything I could think about that that was discussed, uh, because there were lots of good points to be made. Some really, it's really interesting things. Because, I mean, we all thought that we would beat the press. We'd be talking about this in in just a couple of months uh, time from from that meeting. So you know, not enough time to forget everything that you talked about. Well, yeah, two years, two and a half years, whatever it was. You know, later, yeah, God, I can't remember what I had for dinner last night, let alone the conversation I had, you know, back then. So a lot of it is unfortunately lost. I'm, I'm really disappointed at that. Well, I think it's not too late. Let's see if we can get some guests on the show here. Yeah, for sure. That would be fun to get a cast member. I know. Yeah. Rick wrote to us. Uh, he said he just listened to episode 700, another fine show. Thank you, Rick. Now, this is a great question. I love this. He said, uh, He says, having followed Brian Coleman's quest for... Three million miles. <clears throat> I have just one question. Where does he get the cash for this quest? Does he go by way of Vegas on every flight? <laughs> so I, I had kind of wondered that myself. Well, if he did, he wouldn't have the cash. I know, yeah. Any cash he had, he, he would have lost. He'd be losing it, exactly. So we asked Brian. I said, hey, do you, know, do you mind explaining how you're you know, funding this uh this accumulation of, of miles on United for the, uh, what do they call it, the 1K status? Brian says, uh, sure, I don't mind sharing it all. So uh, uh, Brian's response is uh, a little bit longer than this, but just sort of pare it down. Uh, Brian said, I always wanted to achieve lifetime 1K status, so why not go for it? Especially since the lifetime benefits will outweigh the cost of acquisition, or so I hope. Brian says, the wife and I had a very long conversation over this project. I bet they did. And we both feel as though we have one chance on this spinning rock, and we might as well make the best of it. We don't have children, and I, I like this, and I don't want to be the richest person in the cemetery. <laughs> uh, therefore, we might as well spend the money we have on things we want to do. So he says, yes, this is a huge incremental expense, at least for me. However, I did the math, and I think it will work out in my or our favor. The wife will also have 1K status for her life, too. So, he says, it will cost around $20,000 to purchase all the plane tickets. As I'm not staying long at any destination, sometimes he just turns right around and flies back, most of the hotel costs are being paid for with points. Most of the food will be provided either on the airplane or in the lounge. Therefore, the incremental expense, expenses are low. Now, the funds to support this $20,000 project are coming from the proceeds of stock from when I worked for Apple. Boy, how'd you like to be in these shoes? I was an employee from 1996 to 2000, Brian says. If you might remember, Apple wasn't doing so well at that time, and I received a combination of stock options, stock grants, and I also participated in the employee stock purchase program. Therefore, get ready for this, the average cost, really get ready, of my stock is very low, less than $6 per share. Yeah. You can hear a pin drop. $6 a share. I, I hope some of this is post-tax. But anyway, <laughs> in addition to the above logic, we don't have any children, Brian says. Therefore, there is no one to leave anything to. It's just us. So then he says, this is this is kind of clever. Lastly, to help finance the plane tickets, I'm offering person, uh, personal courier services. Uh, 
I wonder if you need a license for this. I haven't talked about it on the show, mostly because I forgot. But one trip, he said, was almost paid for in full by transporting some paperwork. Also, I still work for a company in Germany, and they will pay for a trip or three during the time of this project, although none are currently scheduled. So, he finishes, the very long answer to your question, I'm selling some of my Apple stock to finance the adventure. I'm offering personal courier services, and the company I work for in Germany will pay for some of the travel, too. So, any other questions? He says, please ask. And then there's a PS from Brian. I'm really shocked that three people have committed to fly with me on various adventures. Two have already purchased tickets. Having someone else along on the flight will make it much more enjoyable. Although I do like flying by myself, he says. So uh, there you have it. Interesting. Um, just so you know, just as we record this today, um, Apple stock closed at $145 a share. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, boy. Oh. That's amazing. But, you know, personal courier services, that's something that I w- would never have thought of. In fact, I just did a quick Google search. Where do you even go to find a personal courier you know, service? And it's amazing that he could nearly offset the cost of a ticket. That's that's certainly paying a lot of money to transport documents. And what kind of documents are these? I just have so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the envelope is sealed. <laughs> That's disappointing. Yeah. At least it is when they start the trip. Yeah, right, right. But yeah, what a clever way. You know, it's an exa- it's a great example of you know, if you've got a goal or a vision or or a dream, let's say, many many times when when the dream seems impossible or, you know, not feasible, there's yeah, you can figure out some way to pull it off and you know, through a variety of different means, uh, Brian has done that. I was also wondering about his, uh, you know, the spousal approval for him uh, uh, going off and doing this. But, uh, yeah, Brian, sounds like you got that all taken care of properly. So good for you. And, Brian, thank you for the invitation to join you on the trip to Singapore. I'm sorry I had to demure. But, frankly, that's not the way I want to see Singapore, which was, you know, 14 hours on a plane, wait a few hours, and then 14 hours coming back. So I understand that it uh, achieved his objective. But, holy cow. I, that's that's not the way I want to see Singapore. Yeah, you would get to see the airport. Shanghai Shanghai Airport is is really beautiful. It's, uh, I mean, it could almost be a destination in and of itself. But fourteen hours there and fourteen hours back, uh, yeah, you want to see more than just the airport. Definitely, for sure. All right, so um, David's going to be able to help us with this. So uh, T wrote us. Uh, he said, "Hi, love the podcast." Here's a possible use for a gently used aircraft. And it's an article in Aviation Week. U.S. Air Force's next airborne nuclear command and control aircraft needs four engines. So uh, this is to replace the the E-4B. So uh, we we did the AWACS thing. David, uh, explain what this aircraft is. The doomsday plane. (laughs) I figured. So this is where the president goes, right? Well, the, it, it's the National Airborne Early Warning Airborne Command Post, or the Doomsday Plane, or Night Watch, depending upon where, what time, when, and who's doing what. If it if the president supported it, it's of course Air Force One. Um, but it is the National Airborne Command Post, which is usually escorts the president when he goes overseas. There's like. I'm not sure what the current total is, but there's at least five of them. 
and they're basically 747-200s that are electronic, that's why E, electronically designed that in case of a nuclear war, they would be able to launch the retaliatory strikes and provide sustainment of the U.S. government. It's also usually the E-4 is the head of, for the Department of Defense, the Secretary of Defense's aircraft when he goes overseas. So I just found a picture here, and it looks very much like Air Force One, but it looks like it's got some kind of scoop on the on the top. It's almost as if there's a air intake there, but maybe it's uh, you know some type of dome. What? That's a national. That's the Satcom antenna. That's okay. It, it it has quite a few things. It has a Satcom antenna. It also has trailing antennas, which for um, very low, ultra low frequency antennas that go several miles long that trail out the back of the aircraft to speak to submarines. But the Air Force, like Air Force One, wants to be able to lose two engines and still keep it flying. The four engines is definitely important. I mean, there's a bunch of 747-800s now that are coming off the line that could be used or even just the engines used off of them to support the airframes. But the E-4 is a 1970s aircraft, vintage aircraft. Now, the electronics is probably early 2022nd century stuff that we'll never know about for another 30 years. But that being said, it's definitely long in the tooth as far as an airframe goes and engines. Yeah, a lot more antennas on top, and I recognize one of them. It looks like DirecTV. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Netflix, and the other thing, if you notice, if you look carefully at the engines, um, if you look at the pylons, you'll see things like um, flare and chafe dispensers, as well as um, you know self-defense items. But again, it's designed to survive in case of a national disaster. So David, did, is this something that's flying 24 seven? It, at one point it was, but these days, you know, it, it is capable of air, air to air refueling. Of course, a lot of its functionality now can be aboard air force one and going forward. A lot of that kind of sophisticated electronics can be moved to the new airframe beyond what it's capable of doing. Um, electronics have gotten smaller, you know, but the antennas, these airframes, if you go back and look 20 years, look at them, they had maybe a third of the antennas. Now they just bristle with antennas. They've always, the night watch has always had that large SATCOM antenna on the top. All right. Hey, we got some really spectacular news from uh, our friend Peter Johnson and his, uh, his podcast, of course, Aviation Extended has made the list of uh, finalists for the Aerospace Media Awards. Now, uh, there are a number of different categories, quite a few of them. And the the category that uh, he's a finalist in is uh, Best Digital Submission. And uh, competition is uh, Aviation Week's Check 6 podcast, Peter's uh, Aviation Extended, specifically the RAF Coastal Command Series. Also, uh, Semaphore Intelligence is a finalist in that category. Uh, Defense and Aerospace Report in FutureFlight.Aero 
also. So uh, really exciting. Uh, that, that's great, uh, great stuff for Peter. Just being selected as a finalist in the uh, Aerospace Media Awards is uh, really significant. That's great. Yeah, congratulations to him. And I think this is something that uh, Rob has been up for in the past or has won in the past. Yes, I, I think he's been in there in the past. Uh, I scanned through the, the list, all the categories, and just looking for people or publications that that I recognized. And uh, there might have been some others, but I did see that John Ostrower's The Air Current is uh, up for the uh, the best in-depth aviation submission, and that's for uh, the Air Currents Russia-Ukraine multi-part feature. So, uh, congratulations, uh, congratulations to uh, to John and the uh, you know the Air Current crew for being nominated. The Air Current. Uh, well, I think we have an item from the Air Current coming up, but uh, of course that's a subscription news and analysis service. It's not inexpensive. It, well, if you're just an individual, you know, it's it's not inexpensive for you know, a corporate subscription kind of thing. It's it's quite reasonable. Harriet Harriet Bond wrote to us. Uh, this is an article uh, from uh, well, it's actually a press release uh, kind of a thing. It's from Artemis Aerospace, and it's it's titled "High Flyers: Five Careers in Aviation That Don't Require a Pilot's License." It's pretty interesting. Now, it's it's focused on on kind of the um, you know the services that Artemis Aviation or Artemis Aerospace rather provides. So you know it has that kind of uh, kind of perspective. But uh, they are careers that are uh, you know fantastic opportunities for some people who don't or can't you know be a pilot. Uh, the first one is aircraft maintenance engineer. Airplanes need maintenance. As long as there's airplanes, you're going to need. <laughs> You're going to need maintenance engineers. Well, and we've talked about pilot shortages. There is definitely a shortage of uh, aircraft mechanics, uh, particularly in GA. I would imagine it's also the case in uh, the airlines and other uh, aviation segments as well. And there's lots of subcategories of that. There's line maintenance. Uh, there's base maintenance. There's um, mechanics that will work on uh, engines, other uh, Aircraft components, avionics maintenance. There's a lot of subcategories here, but yeah, it makes, there's there's a lot of opportunities for aircraft maintenance engineers. Another one uh, mentioned in the article: component sourcing account manager. If you're doing aircraft maintenance, you need you need replacement parts, spare parts, and a lot of times you, when you need them, you need them now. So there's a whole skill set towards. Uh, providing that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of a service. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting job. Actually, uh, many years ago, I had a group of, uh, of folks who did this for a, uh, an engine overhaul facility, Pratt & Whitney facility. Engines would come in, they'd tear down the engines, they'd go through an inspection process. Some parts were fine, some parts could be repaired, and they went out to repair. Other parts uh, were not repairable. Uh, for whatever reason, it needs to be replaced. And so you need all of these spare parts to uh, come back together to go into the engine that you want to reassemble. And like I said, this was a long time ago, and especially back in those days. We used to have a, there was a saying at Pratt & Whitney that no two engines ever went out the door with the exact same bill of material. Hmm. I wouldn't have guessed that, but that's amazing. What's, what's the typical parts count on one of those engines? Oh, gosh. Um, if I, uh, man... 
I, I think around 15,000. Holy, I wouldn't have guessed that many. That's amazing. Something like that. Oh, yeah, there are lots of parts, lots of individual, yeah, individual part numbers. One of the things that uh, was particularly troublesome for the my analysts who were trying to source these parts is that uh, there was a concept called quick engine change, QEC. And the idea was that you have the engine that has to be connected to the airframe and different airframes, different uh, airlines would have different kinds of requirements for components that would connect to it. Um, so the idea was that you know, you'd, you'd, instead of hardwiring, basically, uh, an engine onto the wing, you'd have this quick engine change stuff. So you'd have connectors between whatever was on the airplane and whatever it needed to connect to on the engine, if you know what I mean. But each one of those things was was different. So when an engine of this type came in to be overhauled, you'd have to, or my guys would have to source these little specialized connectors or tubes or little wiring harnesses or something. And there were so many different variations of them. There was no way you could stock this stuff. So you had to you know, scout the universe for, for these things. So anyway, to bring it back to, back to this component sourcing account manager, uh, there's a lot more to that than you might than you might think. And for some people, it's a perfect job, right? It's it's like solving a puzzle. It's like, how do you get all these pieces? Because you, know, you need every single piece, including every single fastener, every single you know little piece for the engine or for the aircraft to fly. You've got to get the right stuff. I imagine that's even more of a challenge than it has been in recent years, simply because of all the supply chain issues that have cropped up because of the pandemic, as well as uh, all of the delivery issues. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the high cost of fuel, which is now raising the, the cost of transportation. So, yeah, I, I would imagine this is uh, pretty challenging. Now, in those days, was this mostly kind of done by Rolodex? Did they have kind of the, the list of people to call to try and find particular parts? Oh, yeah. I think each each analyst had his own, his or her own Rolodex, or maybe not, you know, not literally, but you know, sources for uh, for information and parts, and uh, so they knew where to go typically to you know to find parts. But sometimes you know you were getting new parts. Sometimes you were getting you know used parts, refurbished parts. There's a variety of different sources for for this kind of stuff. Well, you'd have to watch out for counterfeit parts as well. That's been a huge problem in the aviation industry. Yeah, there's always zero tolerance for for counterfeit parts. Some if I should say this, sometimes if an engine came in that had been overhauled by someone else, sometimes you'd find things in there that, well, I'll just say uh, weren't to the engine manual or, or, or you would we would not have put those in ourselves. No way. But yeah, the, the paperwork trail for parts was key. You, you could have a, a $95,000 part and if it didn't have the exact correct paperwork, it was scrap. You you need the pedigree, uh, and this is something that you know was always top of mind. So traceability, got to know exactly yes. where that thing went from cradle to grave. Yes, the the paperwork is uh, associated. When when you send out an engine that had been overhauled, uh, of course it, it's probably all digitized now. I'm sure, but uh, back in those days, it was you know paper. The documentation for that engine overhaul would be feet tall. I mean, just unbelievable. 
All right. Another uh, another one of these uh, jobs it talks about is uh, flight simulator support. Those are big, expensive uh, devices. They tend to be operated 24-7 because, because of the cost of them. If those go down, they need to be fixed quickly. I mean, I can imagine. I remember, you know, there used to be Xerox, you know, for copying machines, technicians, and they get to travel all over the place fixing people's, in those days, incredibly expensive copy machines. I imagine it's very similar here. You probably get to see uh, a lot of different places. You, you probably get to travel a lot if you're a flight simulator support person. Well, I can tell you that for the level D simulators, typically the contract includes a full-time person on site. Really? Because I've, yeah, those simulators usually come with the, the maintenance tech uh, who, you know, he might not be, he or she might not be on site uh, 24 hours, uh, but they're certainly there eight hours a day and they're probably on call the, uh, the rest of the hours. All right, I'll just mention there's two others in here, uh, aircraft technical manager, and air traffic controller. I was hoping Rob would be here because he was one. Um, he could talk talk about that. Um, but those are two other uh, kind, and, and there are just many, many others that you know represent interesting career opportunities for uh, someone with an interest in aviation. We'll have uh, we'll have a, a, a link to this article from Artemis Aerospace, and uh, you can check that out. Get some ideas. Speaking of Rob's career as a controller, he had two different uh, controller careers. His very first one was in the Air Force, and he wasn't just a regular controller. He went to the UK where he was a GCA controller. Now, do you know what that is? A GCA controller. David? Ground control. Yeah, so essentially he's talking the aircraft down. So this would be what's known as a PAR approach where basically they have a separate set of radar uh, it scans both horizontally and vertically, and they literally talk you down. You know, they tell you turn two degrees left, turn, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're you're one degree high, and they literally talk you down to a point where you're 200 feet above the ground and lined up and and ready to land. So they have special equipment for that, and of course, it's a a separate controller position and separate uh, training. And usually, you only find it at military uh, bases. It's uh, it's not very common. Back in Rob's day, they had extra fog in Great Britain, but the weather the weather in in you know in we won't talk when, but when these um, aircraft were flying in, making lots of noise and lots of smoke, so that should tell you the vintage of them in fog, Rob's job was to bring in the aircraft. It's definitely a sophisticated job, and he talks very highly of his time in Europe. We have one shout-out before we move on to some news. We do have some aviation news to talk about. And uh, this is from Women in Aviation International, WAI. And so they have a program. It's called Honor the Wasp, where they honor the uh, the WASP, the Women Air Force Service Pilots, by visiting their grave sites and leaving an appropriate decoration. That might be flowers or some other remembrance. And they've done this for five years. Originally, it was uh, envisioned that this this would take place annually over the Memorial Day weekend, but COVID and large groups and, and things. So uh, this year, they are uh, doing this during the entire month of May. Uh, you can participate in this. You don't have to be a WAI member to participate in the Honor the Wasp program. They have a database of wasp grave sites, including Google Maps to their locations. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And 
they, they note that the original database was provided by Texas Women's University, uh, which is the home of the WASP archives. And so that's uh, regularly updated. So uh, people who participate in this are asked to tweet a photograph of their visit and include who they visited, where they're located, use the hashtag honor the wasp. It's something that you can get involved in and and you know do something good. And it might be interesting just to check out this database of wasp grave sites to see if there's some something near you and you know you might be able to uh, uh visit the site and uh, you know contribute some kind of a some kind of a remembrance. So uh, look for that in the show notes. A little bit of aviation news. Nobody was expecting this. This is from the Air Current. Again, John Ostrauer's excellent publication. FAA changes course on eVTOL certification. David, do you want to describe this? What's happening here? The FAA originally was going to certify eVTOL aircraft as powered aircraft like tilt rotors, like Leonardo's AW609, made in Philadelphia, by the way. But they're now moving eVertols away from that into a more stringent and going to start treating them like aircraft, which is going to sort of take everybody... We, and we discussed this on UAV Digest, sort of took everybody by surprise and is going to force a lot of rethink on how um, eVertol is going to be flown, how it's going to be classified, how it's going to be certified. Um, there's a lot going on, and um, it's definitely not what the eVertol universe was expecting. Yeah, and I got a little hint of this. Back in February when I was talking with somebody who runs one of these EV tall companies. And what part of the other challenge besides being in a, a new certification category is, hey, we now need pilots with powered lift certificates. And there are virtually none of those uh, in the industry. I think um, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think the uh, uh, the Osprey, the V-22 pilots, I believe that's powered lift. Is that right, David? You know? Yeah, that's powered lift. The The Leonardo AW609 actually is the civilian tilt rotor that's based on the technology from the V-22. It, originally, it was um, Augusta and Bell, and then uh, Bell dropped out of it, and, and Augusta helicopters became Leonardo. It's the civilian test road pilot program, and... I know Leonardo only has six or seven pilots qualified on it. So there's a lot of military pilots qualified on e the, this classification, but definitely not in the civilian world. Well, so it's a problem both for getting test pilots, because certainly you've got relatively few powered lift licenses, relatively few test pilots within that subcategory. And then when you deploy these thousands of eVTOLs, it will darken the skies in the future. Now suddenly the pilots need to have a totally different type of certification as well, which means a check ride uh, as well as uh, all the training leading up to that. So, yeah, I think this is uh, th this is probably a, a bit of a, a shock that's going to you know, propagate through the industry. I think it just has creates a number of issues that they may not have fully anticipated. The FAA seems to 
at least as I get it reading the air current, seems to be viewing this as not a big change. Uh, but clearly the, the, the industry and the investors uh, are a little apprehensive about this. I think people are still trying to figure out maybe just exactly what this is going to mean to them. But, uh, I mean, we have a situation where we have a number of companies that are racing to develop you know, EV tolls, and a lot of investor money has gone into these companies. So there's kind of a lot on the line when the FAA suddenly changed the changes the ground rules. Yeah, it makes them nervous. They're not sure what this is going to mean. It was kind of arbitrary and sudden, you know. It the FAA wasn't really sort of alluding to it or anything, and there there's going to have to be a whole infrastructure of pilots, as Max Trescott has alluded to, um, that needs to be built for testing, for check rides, for, you know. And it, I I don't think the FAA really thought. You know, they might not think it's a big deal, but there's a lot of companies out there that were creating an aircraft that you weren't going to be a pilot and needed to fly. At the museum, um, we have two Kitty Hawk flyers. And the whole point of the Kitty Hawk flyer was after five hours of flight time training, you could fly a electric vehicle, you know, and without a license. And that was the concept that was going forward, even on the bigger things. So this is definitely going to be interesting to see how this shakes out over the next six months to a year. Yeah, and if you thought we had a pilot shortage among airline pilots, boy, (laughs) (laughs) this this is taken to the extreme. I mean, there is a huge shortage of pilots now suddenly for an area for which we didn't even realize there was any demand. Yeah. All right, we have a piece from Web Info USA, which I think scrapes content off web pages. In this case, the Telegraph, which you have to sign up to view, so we can't. Bad Telegraph. So we scrape on with British Airways hit by pilot rise up over pay cuts. Yeah, the BA pilots are not happy, and I hadn't realized that they had struck a deal back in July 2020 for pay cuts of 20%. Now, that's a that's a big hit to anybody's uh, salary, uh, falling to 8% over the next uh, two years. But it's going to continue to uh, you know, have them at less than full salary until 2028. So think about it. That's eight years where not only have you had no salary increase, you've been getting less than the salary <laughs> you were used to getting. Uh, so not surprisingly, they're pretty unhappy about that. Uh, and so they're they're kind of protesting this now. It sounds like the uh, the original idea was uh, you know fairly what can I say generous uh, to the employees because by taking these uh, pay cuts, what they did was vastly reduce the number of pilots that would have been laid off. So had they not done this pay structure, they said that they would have lost twelve hundred and fifty five pilots 
by having pilots take the 20% pay cut, they only had to uh, get rid of or you know, lay off 270 pilots. So that's about an 80% reduction in the number of people who would have been laid off. In, in those kinds of, what can I say, share the pain programs, you know, I've certainly seen those in my years at HP where everybody took salary cuts and the whole idea was, hey, this way we don't have to lay off people. Uh, that's certainly a very benevolent approach. But I think uh, pilots are kind of running out of patience and saying, hey, <laughs> we'd like to start getting our money. And I can imagine the airlines who are now facing higher cost for fuel and all kinds of other uh, challenges aren't anxious to start increasing their uh, payroll costs. So anyway, yet another problem that's uh, going on in the airline industry. It's been bad timing for anything pay-related or cost-related from an airline standpoint. Well, think about inflation now. You know, inflation has suddenly reared its ugly head, and we've had some months recently where it's been running around eight percent. Wow! I mean, if you if you had a an eight percent pay cut, you just got another eight percent pay cut because of inflation. All right. Let's see. This is uh, oh the fifteen hundred hour rule. This is of course the uh, the requirement, the FAA, the regulatory requirement that uh, you know the pilots have fifteen hundred hours. Um, that was an increase that came about after the uh, was it the Colgan crash? Correct, two thousand nine Colgan air crash. That's one. Uh, basically, uh, Congress mandated a couple of years later. I think it was in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen that airline pilots, in order to sit in either seat, but particularly the right seat, needed to have a minimum of fifteen hundred hours plus an ATP certificate. Prior to that, there was no minimum number of hours. And as I recall, I don't think people in the right seat needed an ATP certificate when they uh, first started. Uh, so uh, in many countries, uh, people in the right seat had as little as 250 hours. Here in the U.S., it was rare that you would have someone who had probably less than 500 hours uh, in the right seat. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, most airlines didn't have 1,500-hour pilots uh, starting in the, the right seat. So this really changed the dynamics here in the U.S., uh, suddenly, uh, people who thought they were going to get hired on the airlines ended up spending another year or two building time until they could reach the 1,500 hours. Republic is saying, hey, we'd like to kind of roll things back a little bit. Uh, that What they're proposing is that uh, co-pilots, uh, right-seaters, be allowed to be hired and fly with just 750 hours of experience. It turns out that Republic, which is uh, the, the regional carrier that's proposing this, is unique among all the regionals in that they have their own in-house training program called Lift Flight Academy. And what they're saying is that the training standards for pilots who come through this environment are very similar to, for example, pilots trained in the military. People going through this program are already being trained for an airline environment. And so they are essentially petitioning to the FAA to get this uh, exemption. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I talked with Rob about this on the phone just a day or two ago, and he said, eh, you know, it kind of makes sense just to leave things the way they are. I, you know, I'm a little bit more in favor of it. I I could see granting this uh, because I think two things. One, I think the 1,500 hours is pretty excessive. Uh, We've flown for years with people with less experience. Uh, and we also have a shortage. So to me, it might make sense to roll back the the rule. Now, I know that people, especially the families of the Colgan air crash, would be totally up in arms if this were to occur. 
But the reality is that both pilots in Colgan Air had far more than 1,500 hours. So even though that crash was kind of the uh, the cause of the change, it wasn't really directly related. So the you know the fix wasn't related to what the problem was in the Colgan Air crash. So it's an interesting uh, interesting situation. Well, I see from the Republic Airways website that they're hiring. They're hiring captain-ready pilots. They say they're offering up to $60,000 in bonuses, and they have immediate openings at all 10 of their U.S. bases. So, uh, yeah, if you are a captain-ready Embraer E-170 or 175 pilot, check out rjet.com. Maybe you could score yourself a bonus. You could give us 10% just for finder's fee, but we, <laughs> I like it. we wouldn't turn it down. The Airplane Geeks Employment Service. Yeah, yeah. One of the factors, you know, when we keep talking about, you know, pilots and pilot shortages and are there enough or do we need more or whatever. One aspect of this is the, uh, the mandatory retirement age, right, which is, uh, what, I think 65 now. And uh, we see from uh, one mile at a time. Allegedly, because I guess this is not confirmed, but uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, the Republican from South Carolina, is working on a bill that would change the retirement age from 65 to 67. So you get two more years, which, you know, I see a lot of those 65-year-old youngsters and, you know, they, they I don't know, they, they, they look like they've got two years left in them pretty easily. I would think so. You know, this changed back in 2007 when the U.S. Uh, raised the uh, commercial airline pilot retirement age from 60 to 65. And frankly, people continue to live longer. Again, we've got a pilot shortage. It, those gray-haired people that are getting retired at 65 are probably among the best pilots in the airline. So, yeah, this is a change that I would also be sympathetic to. Of course, maybe I'm biased because that would mean I qualify to be an airline pilot. Again. <laughs> Not for long, Not but for uh, long. it would put me back in the running. This was um, something that I, I was not expecting, but uh, in ZDNet.com, there, there's an article about Southwest Airlines. Of course, Southwest Airlines say, say they need more pilots as well. They need 10,000 more employees, including 1,200 more pilots. But the Wall Street Journal is reporting, they get this, that between 15% and 20% of the new hires never show up. <laughs> they apply, they get accepted, they've got a position, and then they just don't show up. I was shocked when I saw this. Seriously, you know, you think about it in our day, when you went out to apply for a job, you were so thrilled when you got that job that, boy, you showed up and you showed up earlier and you were dressed in your best clothes. And it's like, what? 15 to 20% don't show up? I, I, I'm stunned. But I guess the things changed here during the uh, the pandemic. What did they call it? The, the great something, the great retirement, the great whatever when people's just decided to to give up their yes, uh, their jobs working. and yeah exactly uh, and so this is this is an interesting dynamic and they say you've heard of ghosting well <laughs> this is kind of like employment ghosting yes and it's a peculiar uh, new development that that surprises me uh one more one more item one more news item uh, this is from interesting engineering because well it's interesting engineering <laughs> Hawaiian Airlines is building an all-electric sea glider that holds 100 passengers. 
a sea glider. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. I think there is a, an actually a, a class of vehicles where I believe if you stay below something like eight feet, then you don't need a pilot's license for these. I could be wrong on this. I remember reading about these kinds of things years ago in the past. Uh, they've been proposed in the past. I just don't think that many of them ever have made it into service. But once again, the idea is being uh, reborn. And in this particular case, they're talking about an electric version, which I think would be new. Most of these in the past were not uh, electric power. But what's also different is the capacity. They're talking about carrying 100 people. You know, the sea glider type vehicles in the past have, have had just you know, a few people. Uh, so this is pretty ambitious and really substantially different from anything that we've uh, ever heard in the past. It's interesting that Hawaiian Airlines is essentially a partner in the development of this uh, vehicle known as the the Monarch, and they are looking to use it for basically harbor to harbor, uh, you know, transportation here in the in, in among the Hawaiian Islands, uh, entering into commercial service by 2028. Well, all I can say is, with all of the challenges of certificating new aircraft that we've talked about. My guess is it may be a little before 2028, but kind of raises an interesting question. If it if it falls into some special category of a uh, you know, vehicle that doesn't require a pilot's license, well, then maybe the certification is simpler. I just don't know. But, I mean, it, it's an interesting, you know, the Hawaiian Islands, inter-island transportation. Right now, you have to fly Hawaiian Air now. Granted, I did that, what, three years ago now, um, and the service was great, and, and there are people who do this on a daily basis in Hawaii, you know, go from island to island, but you have to go on an airliner. Imagine going down to Honolulu and then going to one of the smaller islands without having to go through an airport. That would be kind of amazing. It's surprising that they haven't brought back seaplanes, you know. Well, it's funny you mentioned seaplanes because I was just thinking about that. There have been so many proposals over the years uh, for seaplanes to provide passenger service. And the reality is almost none of them ever really stay in business for, for very long. And I think part of the challenge is that the sea is a less forgiving runway than, than pavement. You know, weather problems at airports, hey, wait till you see weather problems in the harbor. You know, now, yeah, and, and the other issue when you land a seaplane is every landing is unique because not only do you have the normal problems of, of wind, but also your surface is moving and your surface has waves. It has you know, dimensions uh, to it. So th I think that uh, a lot of folks who look at the whole concept of, oh, wow, we could move people uh, on a regular common carriage uh, by, by seaplane, eh, they're just kind of, um, you know, missing the point that there are going to be many days where that's not going to work. So I, I really hope that these people are successful. It looks like a really uh, nice concept, but I think that, um, you know, the realities of operating seaplanes, boy, they're pretty limited places uh, that, that do that commercially. Certainly in the Seattle area, Vancouver, you do have uh, services that work pretty well. You've got it in the Maldives, and you've also got a service between Florida and the, the Bahamas. Uh, but a lot of the other things that are proposed never really you know, lasted for, for very long. Yeah, they actually had a proposal that was flying from New York to D.C., landing um, at down south of, of D.C., and I don't think the FAA is going to approve that. But, you know, 
from one river to another. That would be kind of an amazing thing. But again, the pilot who has his own seaplane knows what he's talking about. So we really will defer to him. But seaplanes are cool. They are, but I've, I've sold it. I don't have it anymore. You don't have it anymore? No, no. I sold my seaplane. Recently? Oh, yeah. But last year. Oh. Yeah. Yep. My uh, my lake amphibian, the, the Buccaneer. Great fun. Yeah. But it's time, time to move on. So this is a this is a wing in ground effect vehicle they they call it and a wig uh, a wig yeah and uh, Max you mentioned the uh, the Monarch the hundred passenger Monarch actually not their first plan their first plan is a twelve passenger uh, version of this called the Viceroy and um, they actually say that they will uh, see full scale prototypes beginning sea trials next year. 2023 entry into service 2025 so uh, you know we know these things always end up being optimistic and as you mentioned the larger monarch 100 passengers uh, they say EIS in 2028 uh, i think you mentioned that but the folks behind us are kind of interesting the the ceo is from uh, MIT billy thalheimer who worked at Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, then Aurora Flight Sciences. He led the flight physics team for the Boeing PAV electric air taxi. The CTO also came from MIT, Mike Klinker. He's a pilot. Uh, He spent time at Airware, Raptor Maps, MIT Lincoln Labs, and also Aurora Flight Science, designing and operating unmanned vehicles and systems. So the rest of the leadership team has really impressive credentials, although I noticed that all of them are men, but they have impressive credentials. So, yeah, it's worth worth watching. Yeah, and Aurora Flight Sciences, the, uh, the founder was an MIT grad. Uh, I met him when we were uh, both in college at the time. And, uh, of course, Aurora Flight Sciences is now owned by uh, Boeing, and they did a lot of great uh, high-altitude engineering. So, yeah, I didn't realize they were involved in this project, but that uh, that speaks well for it. So I lied. That wasn't the last item. We have we do have one more item because uh, this is pretty amusing, uh, Max. I guess you found this. I did. I just love this. The, the title is Hilarious. Delta Airlines pilot crawls through window of Boeing 737. Now, you might wonder, well, why would he be doing that? And, of course, somebody in the terminal got some video, so you can watch the video. We'll include that in the show notes. It's posted on Twitter. Uh, And these two pilots, uh, they have a a baggage loader, uh, which is right up next to the co-pilot's window. So uh, it turns out that apparently they accidentally, yeah, locked themselves out of the airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny because I was just watching uh, the, the Gold Rush TV show uh, on Friday night, and those people had locked themselves out of an excavator. So they had a large uh, Volvo excavator they were using for mining, and once again, they had to kind of break into it because it had become locked, and there was no way to get in except to you know try to uh, you know slide something through the window. But uh, apparently, with some aircraft, it is possible to lock yourself out. Now I don't think it's the keys that got locked inside, but apparently there's some type of uh, numeric keypad entry that's required to get into the uh, the flight deck. But pretty darn funny. About the only thing I can remember close to this 
was a gentleman I remember reading years ago who had either a Piper or a Mooney, and they have a little tiny side window, which is about the size of the palm of your hand. And this gentleman landed, and he found that he was locked in his aircraft, and he could not get out of his aircraft. And fortunately, he was able to raise someone on the radio who came over to the airplane, and he passed the key out through the little window so that the guy on the ground could unlock his aircraft so that he could get out. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is funny to see these uh, these pilots try to uh, crawl through the cockpit window. I guess, though, that that tells you that at least on a Boeing, this was a you said this is a seven three seven, I think, right? I think so. Yeah. So, at least on on that aircraft, apparently, you can remove a cockpit window without too much trouble from the outside. That's how you clean the front windshield. Just reach out. You go out the side window to clean the front windscreen. I, I know this because my cousin used to work for United as, as a lineman, and you know that's how she would clean the windows. She'd go stick her head out the, stick her body out the side window to clean the front win- windscreen. I guess that makes sense, right? Well, the funny part watching the video is watching them trying to figure out which end first of the body to go through the the window. Yes. <laughs> so in the first case, the pilot has one leg in, and he's you know trying to think, well, do I put the other leg in without falling off the front of this airplane? And so then he decides, no, it looks like this probably isn't very good to go in legs first. I might fall over because there's nothing really to hold on to. And so he he comes back out, and then he goes in head first. first so yeah. he's essentially diving into the window, and the co-pilot's got his legs kind of pushing pushing him in. So I think the the arrival on the on the seat was probably not very graceful. No, no. I'm glad somebody who had you know had the presence of mind to pull out their phone and and capture this because. Otherwise, you might think this was staged. You know, it's just so hysterical that it almost seems like it was staged. But this was definitely not staged. No, I don't think Delta would let people uh, pull these kinds of pranks uh, while using their airplanes in full sight of all the passengers. <laughs> so check it out. The article's in the in the show notes. It's from Live and Let's Fly. And uh, we actually have kind of a lot of stuff uh, for the show notes this episode. A lot of the uh, aircraft we talked about this episode, some of the interesting aircraft we talked about. We've got some photos and stuff, so you can take a look at those. Can I just say I'm very disappointed at Mr. Trescott mm-hmm. that we have gone a, we, 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 we we've gone a week without a paddle your own canoe story. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they do have great stories, so it is always fun. They do, they do, and we still want to get them on the show. So uh, you know, if you're listening, answer my email. Come talk with us. We'd love to have you. You can promote your um, service. Okay, so yeah, if you want to uh, check out the show notes, airplanegeeks.com, or if you want to go you know, straight to the show notes if you're listening to this some weeks after we publish and, and can't find it, just visit airplanegeeks.com slash 702, and you'll find it there. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And any closing comments, observations, plugs from David? No, um, I, I actually got up in the air over uh, last Thursday night, believe it or not. You did? We actually had helicopter rides at the museum, and I got to go, uh, got to go up twice. Um, first time I was doing some footage in a Robinson R44. Yes. 
and it was the first time I got to do do the front seat. Um, but the second flight, uh, second sunset flight was a little bit better. I got to take Amber up for her very first helicopter flight. And what did she think? She thought it was amazing. Um, it was it was funny. We we started take we took off into a little bit of a hover, and she's like, "Oh, when are we going to take off?" And then she looked down and realized she had <laughs> we were already off. Um, so yeah, nice. we Good we had and then we had sa- Sunday. We also had helicopter rides at the museum, but. It is fun watching, especially some of the little kids go for their first ride. We had we had a young woman um, of ninety three on Sunday go for her first helicopter ride. I love that. Definitely is a fun experience. Um, I've gotten uh, a shout out to Sky River Helicopters, who are based in Northeast Philadelphia and um, Doylestown. They're a good bunch of uh, guys and gals up there, and. Um, we we have a good working relationship with them, and it, it's fun when when you know I get to marshal the helicopters in and get to play with you know walk around the heli- active helicopters. So it, it is fun, and then going just going up and tooling around for a little bit to get get into the sky is kind of it was a good time. So that was that. So other than that, um, I'm looking forward to Sunday, which is first air show of the season. Uh, again, taking uh, my partner to her very first air show, and Dover's got the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds, so I can I can remind myself why the Blue Angels are so much better than the Thunderbirds. But besides that, looking forward to next week on next Monday. Uh, David, when you're marshalling in the helicopters, you don't just stand up straight, do you? Do you bend over a little bit? Well, actually, it's kind of funny when you have that conversation because. Um, I can actually stand up straight under the R44. That rotor is so tall. Um, but you wouldn't, you automatically incline to... If you've flown in, in the Bell 47s out at Oshkosh, you have to duck, you know? And one of my newest coworkers took his first flight, and he goes, I ducked, but I didn't really need to. But that's what they always do on the television shows. Yeah. And I'm like... Yeah, I, well, I said yes, and and it's still a good thing for you to do. But you know, I can stand comfortably under the R forty four with the rotor going. Not that I I have, but it is a really tall mast for that helicopter. But as a general rule, duck when you're around a helicopter. Well, yeah, and keep in mind that uh, you know if the winds are calm, the rotor is going to be kind of even height all the way around. But if they're not and they're leaning that rotor you know, into the wind, it's going to be a little lower on one side. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that and you don't go in the back of the aircraft. Um, oh, yes. There's that other windmill um, blades of death that are in the back of the aircraft that, you know, you never walk in the back of a helicopter. You always walk in the front. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of the reverse of an airplane. You don't walk into the front of an airplane, but you don't walk into the reverse of a helicopter. So... Good point. It's definitely a different skill set, but it, it is still fun. All right, Max Trescott, anything from you? No, not much to uh, say. I'll just uh, go ahead and kind of give my closing here and let people know that uh, if they want to check out aviation 
News Talk. Come on over. This week we've got uh, Dr. Catherine Cavagnaro, who is talking about personal minimums and how they may expand and contract depending upon uh, the situation. So personal minimums is a, an FAA concept which pilots must be tested on uh, during the uh, the check ride, which talks about uh, what minimums they will use that go above and beyond the, the bare FAA uh, legal minimums. So check it out at aviationnewstalk.com. And also you can uh, find my uh, books on the G1000 and the G3000 on that website as well. Terrific. And I'm Max Light. If you uh, are not getting enough aviation podcast content, visit aviationpodcastdirectory.com. I've got a big list of podcasts. If you know of any aviation podcasts that are not in there, send us an email. We'll add them to the list. It's just a passion project. There's no... There's no ads. There's no pop-ups. There's no nothing like that. It's just a very simple page with a with a long list of aviation podcasts. Because there are a lot more of them than you might think. All right, so let's uh, close it out. Ask all of you to please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Bye, everybody. Rob, we miss you, and thanks for listening.